0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Sports. I'm your host, Paul Nepper, and today we'll be talking to Har- Harvey Araton about his latest book, Our Last Season, a writer, a fan, a friendship. Many of you know Harvey as a longtime sports writer for the New York Times. Prior to that, he wrote for the New York Post and the Daily News. Harvey's written several books, um, such as The Garden of Eden and Driving Mr. Yogi. And Harvey is a Hall of Famer. He was the recipient of the Basketball Hall of Fame's Kurt Gowdy Award in 2017. Harvey, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Paul. It's great to be here.
0: So this book, is it's a beautiful book. Um, it's a book about friendship, really. And it's apparent how deeply Michelle touched you. Um, Harvey, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, uh, tell our listeners a little bit about Michelle and how the two of you got to know each other.
1: Well, this is a friendship that that uh, goes all the way back to you know around 1980, and uh, at the time, I was a young, insecure uh, beat reporter uh, for the Knicks for the New York Post, and uh, for anyone who's familiar with the Post, uh, you can imagine that uh, a young reporter handed a beat is uh, under tremendous pressure uh, to produce, you know exclusive stories and scoops and kind of grab readers by uh by you know by the by the shoulders as they walk by the the newsstand and um you know i i met this woman uh who sat uh literally right behind the bench uh she seemed uh about 17 18 years older than i am uh, and uh she seemed very friendly i, I didn't know much about her Uh, But it sure seemed like a good idea to befriend someone sitting right behind the bench who could, you know, ultimately, you know, if the friendship uh, grew in some in some way, uh, who could provide me with, uh, you know, with what was going on in the bench area uh, and uh, become my uh, eyes and ears, um, you know, from time to time, uh, filling me in what she saw. Uh, so I'll have to say that the friendship, uh, from my end was one that really was born out of self-interest. Uh, of course I thought she was interesting. I didn't really know much about her. Uh, what I didn't know was that, uh, Michelle, a very unusual person, uh, grew up, went to high school in the late forties and early fifties in Hartford, Connecticut. And she, at that time Uh, Was the uh, the editor uh, the sports editor of her high school newspaper, and fantasized about being a sports journalist? And of course, in those days, there was no pathway into uh, sports journalism for a female. Uh, So you know, as a fan sitting behind the bench, um, she kind of got her kicks a little bit, uh, befriending some of the some of the uh, reporters and columnists, and. you know, kind of enjoyed the interaction and, and kind of vicariously living through us a little bit. Uh, but there was one thing that separated uh, my friendship from uh, with Michelle from some of the other reporters, and that, that was that I worked for an afternoon newspaper. And that gave me a lot of time after games. You know, I had all night to write my story. So I would outlast my competitors in the locker room, and then I would go down to the bar, this, uh, well, famous, no longer there, but a bar called uh, Charlie O's, which was on 33rd Street, right in the garden, in the complex. And I would meet Michelle after games before heading down to the uh, the office down, way downtown uh, at the Post to write my story. And uh, she would fill me in on everything she saw behind the bench and what she heard in the bar. And I would fill her in on everything that I had seen and heard in the locker room. And our friendship seemed to grow from there. Uh, She um, was just one of these things. uh, I wound up meeting a woman who was from Greenwich, Connecticut. Michelle lived in Stanford, Connecticut, basically two exits from where my future in-laws lived. And so, you know, the friendship began to grow from there, and she ultimately became something of a career and life coach for me, Uh, someone who was like, uh, I would call her, that wise family elder that I never actually had in my own family.
0: Yeah, it's clear that she became so much more than a friend, you know, a mentor, I would say a confidant, an advisor. She Michelle had a, the way you describe her, she seemed to have a real kind of straightforward approach to life that that seemed to cut through some of your anxieties. Can you talk a little bit about her, her view on life in general? I know that's a vague question, but...
1: Well, she didn't have an easy life. Uh, she grew up in a family similar to mine working class you know grew up uh, lived in the projects for a while Um, she had a very strange at-home situation her father was uh, jewish her mother was an irish immigrant Uh, her father kept his marriage uh, and his children from his mother so in michelle's first 10 or 11 years of her life Her father would go to work, come home, have dinner with his family, and then go back to his mother's house uh, and uh, spend the night there. He was hiding his family from his mother because she would not have approved of him marrying an Irish girl. Uh, So, you know, it was kind of a tortured childhood in that respect. Um, She also in high school. Uh, came down with a a case of uh, tuberculosis and had to be quarantined for much of a school year. I believe it was her junior year. Uh, She uh, went to college, uh, also a strange choice, St. Mary's uh, and a sister school in Notre Dame in South Bend, Indiana. She graduated, um, uh, came home, married uh, someone she had known in high school, uh, had five children in less than a decade. Uh, pretty neat trick. And, um, you know, then her marriage crashed and burned. Her husband left her, uh, with these five young children did not offer a lot of financial support. Uh, the family was near, near destitution for a while. She actually considered resettling her family in Israel or Australia for, uh, to claim some resettlement money, but decided against it. One summer she, uh, got an internship at uh, a Xerox uh, office in uh, nearby her home, and someone took a liking to her, thought she was really smart, offered her a job in human resources, and she launched a uh, successful corporate career. Uh, she worked for Xerox, for Pepsi, for Time Warner, and ultimately had her own company uh, as a corporate exec, executive trainer, she would travel companies like Procter and Gamble would hire Michelle and send her all over the world to, uh, to train corporate executives or, or try to fix ones who are struggling in their, in their jobs, whether it was, you know, being abusive to employees or whatever it was. And, uh, so that was one part of it. But the other part of it was that, you know, she no longer felt, you know, Uh, that she fit into suburbia she stayed there because she couldn't move a family that large into manhattan but she needed a new place to kind of rebuild her social life and she always liked basketball and she you know she was given corporate tickets to attend a few games or 73 74 uh, fell in love with the whole garden scene bought her own season tickets the first year i guess it was 73 74 the season after the Knicks last championship, began to work her way closer and closer to the bench area and uh, wound up rebuilding her social life around that, you know, that little neighborhood. I mean, everybody knew her. She was what I called her was sort of, you know, the opposite of Spike Lee, who sat across the court on Celebrity Row. Michelle was uh, what I call the non-celebrity celebrity fan. Uh, All the reporters knew her. She was often quoted in the papers uh, more as the sort of the voice of the price gouged fan. Um, But um, she not only, you know, was a fan who was uh, totally committed to, uh, to the team and the game and the the environment, but she also assimilated that world. I mean, she hung out with retired, retired former players like Willis Reed and Butch Beard and, uh, you know, people who are around the garden scene. Um, that's where her social life, you know, really developed in her post marriage, uh, post, post marriage years. And, um, she developed a network of friends, women, much like herself who were not married, um, were career women. And, um, So in many respects, this is not only, it's a story about friendship and mentorship and about a mutual love, a shared love for, you know, the scene at the garden, you know, from my own perspective as a reporter and columnist, hers as a fan, Um, but it's also a story about women's empowerment. I mean, this this is someone who started essentially with nothing and five children to support and keep a roof over their heads. And uh, her success story is something that was, you know, incredibly inspirational.
0: Absolutely. And Harvey, you, you uh, I, well, spoiler alert here. Sadly, Michelle dies at the end of the book. I, I don't think that's giving anything away. That's part of the story. Um, and just in reference to, you know, you talking how she was kind of the quintessential Nick fan in a way. Um, uh, there, the my favorite line in the book by far. And, and you and I both know Charles Oakley has a way with words. And I think he, 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 he described Michelle as a fan perfectly. I wonder if you could share what Oak had to say about Michelle.
1: Yeah, well, after Michelle passed away in June of 2018, um, the first thing I did was I wrote her obituary for the Times. And uh, it wasn't, wasn't really my idea. Uh, A mutual friend of ours said, you know, you should really write. Michelle loved the New York Times so much. She was old school. I mean, she never read a story online. Everything was print. She had four daily newspapers delivered to her doorstep every day. uh, till you know, to the last days of her life, she was still, you know, reading the papers. She loved it. Uh, So uh, I wrote a little pitch to the obits editor, and much to my surprise and delight, he said, oh, sure, who wouldn't want to read that? A woman who sat behind the bench, who everybody knew at the garden for all those years. So I, um, I started calling around to people I knew who knew Michelle, and one of them was Charles Oakley. And when I asked him about her, and some of these people, I, I was informing them that Michelle had passed. Because it was late June, the season would, had ended, and you know, no one was really around the garden at that point. And so, a lot of my calls were met with a lot of sadness. And when I asked Oak about her, um, you know, he launched into this—he um, launched into this whole thing about uh, how Michelle, more than anyone, knew what I was about because she was there every night. She knew that I came to play and. You know, Oakley, uh, you know, understood or fancied himself, you know, justifiably as a foundational pillar of that 1990s, you know, perennial contending team. And um, so when he got around to, you know, the whole point, which was who was Michelle and what did she represent to him? He said he called her the Oakman of Knicks fans because she was there every night year, season after season, year after year, decade after decade. Uh, and he said, you know, a lot of people make a big deal about Spike Lee, but, you know, he gets a chauffeured ride from the Upper East Side every night. Michelle came <laughs> in from Stanford, Connecticut, an hour and a half each way. Rain, sleet, snow, she was there every night. And that's why, to him, she was the oak man of Knicks fans. So
0: it's a it's a great line and it's just such an oak, such an oak thing to say, too. Um, Harvey, we have to talk about the ninth chapter of this book and a title that will resonate with a lot of Nick fans. The title of the chapter is Dolan and the Death of Hope. Please explain where that came from.
1: Well, Paul, you know, when I set out to do this book, I, I knew that this was a story about relationships. And uh and the deep meaning of it. But, you know, the most intriguing aspect actually was, um, the, the sense of aging because, you know, while Michelle was aging and, you know, during the, 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 season that represents our last season, her health was deteriorating. And, and it was also, uh, myself going through, you know, that transitionary stage, having left the staff of the New York times in 2016 and, trying to address just, you know, that eternal question after you semi-retire. I mean, I, I wasn't stopping from, you know, re- stopping writing in any in any sense, but I was no longer in daily journalism. And you ask that question, well, who am I now? You know, so, um, so that was sort of the shared dilemma. But you can't write a book about uh, a, that essentially co-stars uh, a committed Knicks fan without addressing the subject of Jim Dolan. And Michelle sat sitting behind the bench was, you know, within close view of Jim Dolan sitting on that side of the floor behind, you know, behind the, uh, behind the baseline. Uh, And she had a good view of him these last, well, the last 18 years or so that she was attending games when he was in effect the owner, uh, slumped in his seat with that terrible body posture that we've all come to know and loathe. and so, you know, Michelle was very hopeful uh, around the start of this, the start of the second decade in this century, when Donnie Walsh was the GM and Mike D'Antoni was the coach, that the Knicks were finally on the path to building something worth seeing. And perhaps the possibility of even watching a championship team before it was her time to no longer be able to go to the games or no longer be alive. And, you know, at the time, you know, and I guess it was around 2011, 2012, uh, Dolan was renovating the garden over the course of three summers, and he was intending to help have Knicks fans, in effect, pay for it, uh, you know, by, by escalating the season ticket prices tremendously. And, you know, in return... He decided that well he would give them a superstar, and that's when he sort of intervened in the trade talks between Donny Walsh and the Denver Nuggets, and kind of forced Walsh to pull the trigger on a trade where the Knicks gave up a lot of assets for Carmelo Anthony. Uh, when they might have gotten him for virtually nothing, had they waited till the following fall or following summer and allowed and and signed him as a free agent. There were other complications. The nets were involved. There was, it was a sense that he might, you know, approve a trade to, to New Jersey at that time on the way to Brooklyn. But in any event, uh, it was widely known that Dolan had stepped in and forced, forced Walsh's hand to make this trade, strip the team of its assets in exchange for having this, you know, fairly one-dimensional scoring machine, Carmelo Anthony. Michelle never forgave Dolan for it. And came to not loathe him personally, because that's not the kind of person she was, um, but came to resent the kind of dysfunctional uh, organizational management that he represented. And at the same time, she also resented Carmelo, not so much because she disliked him personally. I used to assure her that he actually was a pretty nice guy. Uh, if not a kind of a killer in a sense, like Kobe Bryant or Michael Jordan or LeBron James, um, but she resented that whole episode in Nick's chapter in Nick's history that she came to believe cost her any chance of seeing, you know, a, a championship contending team in the final year she was able to attend. So this chapter in the book. Uh, as you mentioned, it's called Dolan and the Death of Hope, covers this this particular chapter, but also um, finds Michelle uh, sort of ruminating or fantasizing about what it would have been like if she could have had the opportunity to work with Dolan in her field of expertise, which was working with troubled corporate executives. She even once considered she told me calling David Stern, who she knew, and asking him to intervene and allow her uh, uh, a chance to to try to get Dolan to be a better to be better at his quote unquote job. Uh, of course, it was not something she followed through on. But in the last year of her life, as we took to recording some of our conversations and recollections. Uh, I once asked her, did you ever think about you know, what it might be like to work with Jim Dolan and, and apply all you, all the skills that you've used to work with corporate executives all around the world? And she said, have I? And she went on for 45 minutes to give me a detailed breakdown of what she would have advised Jim Dolan to do. Of course, it never would have happened. He's an obstinate human being. He never would have accepted or or agreed to something like that, but it was something that she thought about extensively. And so that is, in effect, is that, is that chapter, Michelle sort of whimsically talking about the things that, the things that she observed uh, and the things she might have done to try to, quote unquote, fix him.
0: Right. It's, it's such an insight into her character that she even contemplated such a thing, because, I mean, that taking, taking on that project with, with Jim Dolan, that, that's, that would be one heck of a project. <laughs>
1: Well, I thought that, I thought that the one of the one of her great observations was, you know, it's commonly it's common knowledge of how uh, uncomfortable, awkward he is in public, you know, as a as an owner compared to people like you know Mark Cuban or 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 Balmer out in out in L.A. or you know any number of people who seem to just you know you know embrace embrace the responsibility. Uh, of being a sports team owner in a major market. Um, But she also made the observation of having seen video of him performing in his rock band or blues band on stage, how much more natural he seemed, you know, rocking his fedora and, you know, playing his guitar and singing. And she said it was like this completely different person. And her theory about it, which I thought was fascinating and a testament to her understanding of human behavior, was that. The Knicks' ownership was something he didn't do for himself. He didn't create it. His father handed it to him. And, you know, it's a lot of pressure. We've seen that with other sons of other uh, sports team owners in New York, whether it's the Steinbrenners or the Maras or, you know, the Wilpons. Uh, The younger ones, the sons, the heirs, struggle in that kind of public setting. And yet on stage with the music, which was something all his own, he seemed much more confident and, you know, and comfortable in that role. And I've noticed that myself, of course, only after Michelle pointed it out. Uh, but uh, I thought that was a terrific observation. And that's sort of part and parcel to what that chapter is about.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating. He's, he is an interesting character. Um, so you mentioned... and. and You talk about in the book, Michelle was not very fond of Carmelo. And as you said, not personally, but as a player. Um, Who were some of her favorite players over the years?
1: Well, it's funny you should ask that because uh, her absolute favorite player in the NBA in the last years of her life was Russell Westbrook. She loved the Thunder. When the Thunder came in, I think part of it was because she had struck up, as she did with several players, and often there were players who were you know, bit players because they were on the bench a lot and they would come out early to shoot, uh, before the big guys would show up. And, um, but Scotty Brooks, who had a cup of coffee with the Knicks for a year or two, uh, she had befriended him and he always, whether he was coaching in OKC or in in Washington would always come by and give Michelle a hug as did many people, whether it was the regulars at the garden like Mike Breen and Walt Frazier, uh, Van Gundy, um, Doc Rivers, when he would come back, but Scottie Brooks would always come over, and and she loved that team uh, when they had uh, obviously James Harden and and uh, Durant and and Westbrook. Um, but she loved Westbrook. She loved his theatrical energy and his. But I used to I used to kid with her that you know you you claim to love Russell Westbrook. He's really not that much of a different type player than Carmelo. You know, everybody complains right. that he doesn't give up the ball and that. <laughs> you know, his teams don't get over the hump and he takes bad shots at the end of close games. But Michelle liked what, she liked what and who she liked. And that was just, you know, she just loved the way he played, the aggression. Um, She loved through the, you know, I would say that um, I think there's a point in the book where I I say that, um, you know, I would consider Walt Frazier to be the greatest Nick ever. And Michelle would um, would say Willis Reed. uh, But because, again, the sort of the human element, the captain, the emotional leader, all of that, those are things she really admired. But the guy we both agreed was the most compelling player was Bernard King. We both absolutely love Bernard and that brief but spectacular period where he was really at the height of his game. Uh, she loved Oakley, obviously. She admired Patrick Ewing, but she never adored Patrick because he was somebody who, you know, sort of played inside his own emotional bubble. I mean, Patrick was not one to kibitz with the fans behind the bench. You know, he would never make eye contact. So she always felt like a little distance from him, even though she was right there for his entire career uh, at the Garden. Um, she you know she she loved um the charismatic players, obviously magic bird uh during that period when magic bird and then Michael came into the league she so um she so much wanted the Knicks to have a player like that uh because in her mind the only guy they really had like that was Bernard, but then when he you know he tore up his knee, that was pretty much it, so it was what two and two and a half years that he was. You know, essentially, you know, one of the best players in the league on the Knicks. But also, when I say one of the best players, so is Patrick, but he was not one of those transcendent guys that sold a lot of sneakers and, you know, made you watch him, right? Um, right? So during that period, the Bird Magic era, and then of course Michael in the league, she actually had season tickets to the Nets as well over in New Jersey because it gave her more opportunities to see the guys like Bird. And Magic and, you know, those kinds of players come into the home arena. I and mean, that's how much of, a, of an NBA junkie she became, uh, you know, once, you know, she kind of assimilated that world. She was, she was willing to go whenever if there was a game, Michelle was willing to go. She often showed up at All-Star Games, All-Star Weekends. Uh, that, by the way, is my first memory of having a long conversation with Michelle it was 1981. The NBA All-Star game was in Cleveland, which at that time had a very suburbanized arena out in Richfield, Ohio. But we were down in the hotel and, you know, the All-Star weekend was a lot smaller in those days. And I remember this woman showing up into like a small media party on a Friday night with a New York Times credential hanging around her neck, which I thought was pretty, you know, interesting how she got that. Um, And we just got into a conversation and we talked for about an hour over drinks and, I said, "Wow, she's interesting." Uh, I didn't know what the hell she was doing there, um, <laughs> but you know that was my that's my first memory of you know extended contact with Michelle. She claimed that we had encounters, you know, passing at the garden, but you know those are all those are all blurred at this point.
0: I'm Alex Rodriguez, and I'm Jason Kelly from Bloomberg. This is the deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment.
1: That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as uh, simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more
0: doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Right. Harvey, you made a career out of writing about other people but you were a central character in this book and you made yourself vulnerable in a way you had not in any of your previous books. Um, You opened up about your insecurities, your degenerative eye condition, uh, career mortality, aging, and of course, ultimately Michelle's death. I wonder how challenging it was for you to be that vulnerable.
1: Yeah. You know, I've had this, it's interesting, Paul. I've had this conversation even before this book, uh, before I was working on this book with other Reporters and columnists, and you know, I, I was a sports of the Times columnist for the Times for about 16 years, and I, you know, even after I uh, was no longer in that position, I left sports for a year in 2009 to write paper-wide features, then came back to sports and sort of had a hybrid job as a columnist and uh, and a long-form feature writer. So, as a columnist, you do get to, you know, write a little bit about yourself, you know, um, you know, you're, you're writing, you're, you're expressing your opinions, but that's, as you say, that's not necessarily being vulnerable in your work and being revealing. Uh, I remember when I wrote, when the garden was Eden um, and I had some, some personal stuff in the book because during right. those years I was in high school and in early college and so I was injecting, you know, some of the, the fans' perspective of, you know, the, the old Knicks, as we call them. And I remember one of the complaints my editor made when I handed in the manuscript was, you know, you, you start to go in the direction of writing about, you know, your father, let's say, uh, as someone um, who was proud of his son. My father was a postal worker. His father was essentially, you know, an immigrant who could barely uh, write English. Uh, You start to go in that direction, but then you seem to back away uh, as if you're afraid to be revealed too much. And uh, so I worked on it a little bit, but, you know, the book wasn't necessarily involved me as a major character. So it really wasn't very much at all uh, in terms of vulnerability. But, you know, nonfiction, is what happens, and if I was going to um, open up a window into Michelle's deeply personal life, you know, with uh, uh, in you know the things that she had experienced, uh, you know, if I was going to reveal her regrets as a mother, the things that she felt she hadn't done for her children, uh, of course, much of it understandable because she was so busy putting a roof over their heads or keeping a roof over their heads. Then, you know, then I had to be um, as open about my own world and my own life. In order to make the book work on any meaningful level, it had to be basically a two-way street. And so, but it was hard. Uh, It was hard. And I had an editor uh, who kept pushing me. The words she kept using were dig deeper. Um, And uh, as the book went on, I began to get more comfortable Uh, With talking about you know my own bouts with episodic depression triggered by whatever you know whatever you know uh, significant event happened whether it was a a job scare or a diagnosis of macular degeneration or uh, you know anything that that you know was deeply emotional uh, I began to become a little more comfortable with it and in some sense. You know, I think that this book, Paul, uh, whether I I don't think I was aware of it at the time, but now in retrospect, I think I can say that because we lost Michelle so suddenly, I mean, I knew her health was deteriorating, but she thought we thought, and she thought that she might be grappling with, you know, signs of early dementia. Uh, At the very end of her life, she was diagnosed with, uh, with lung cancer. And, you know, we lost her in a span of weeks. So, her death was sudden and uh, stunning, and I think I embarked on this project in, but in large part to kind of keep her with me, and so the book really, more than anything, is a continued conversation because I had, the best way I can describe my friendship with Michelle was that it was a, a, four, a one continuous forty year conversation, and you know, that allowed me another year and a half, two years to, to keep it going. Um, her daughter actually said, one of her daughters said that to me, that I get the feeling that you wrote this book because you wanted to keep my mom with you for a longer period. Now that, now that the book is out, there is a certain feeling of emptiness and loss. Uh, so I would say that, you know, once I, I started down the road of doing the book, that it became um, you know, it became a great relief to be writing it to sort of continue, at least in my mind, you know, the, the conversation we had started 40 years earlier.
0: What do you think Michelle would say about the book?
1: Uh, on the one hand, I think she would be flattered. On the other hand, I think she'd probably be a little embarrassed. She liked She liked being called by reporters like myself or whether it was Philip Bondi or Kevin Kernan of the post or George Vesey of the times and asked about, you know, the price gouging or the cost of the tickets, whatever. Um, And she loved being in the spotlight that way, but she didn't like calling attention to herself. She really resented the sort of look at me kind of fans who came to the garden to stand up, with, with the cell phone, their iPhones in their ears, you know, talking on the phone. She hated that. Um, you know, she, she didn't hate Spike Lee personally. Again, she actually admired his films, but she hated the way he made a display of himself or a demonstration of himself. Certainly with the Reggie Miller stuff that she felt cost them, you know, that game when he, when he was making the choke sign and when Reggie was making the choke sign at Spike, um, she really resented that kind of, that kind of fan uh, carrying on, but she didn't like um, being the center of attention uh, for the most part. If there was a reason for her to get attention, then that was fine. So I think in some ways she'd be a little embarrassed by, you know, this kind of attention but at the same time, and, and, and in fact, you know, I said this to a to to couple of her children uh, when I was deciding to do the book. And there are actually a couple of times where during the early stage of the book where I considered bailing on it because I was struggling with it so much. And I thought, well, I know that if I gave Michelle a choice uh, as she was on her deathbed, I said, Michelle, look, I can do one of two things for you to show my love and respect for you. Uh, I could write your obit in the New York Times or a book about our friendship. She would have hesitated not a second and chosen the obit in the Times because that represented to her, much like when I got a job at the Times and I struggled with the whole concept of going to work there because it was not a world that I had grown up in. I didn't go to an Ivy League college. I didn't you know, feel a lot of academic... Co- I didn't have a lot of academic confidence. I felt that I belonged more in the tabloid world of the Daily News and the New York Post, and also that that was the world that my father enjoyed seeing me in. Um, so, you know, I think Michelle's pride in her ability to create a corporate life, a successful corporate career, have her own company, and travel all over the world... Um I think the pride she had in that, uh, and that being chronicled in 900 or so words in the New York Times, which is a forever archive. Um, I think she, you know, that she would have had more pride and, and chosen that more than a book. Uh, that said, I'd like to think that, um, you know, because uh, this book, is a tribute to the friendship, not only to me, not only the one she had with me, with but to other people, she reached out literally and touched uh, from that courtside seat. I think she would have been happy with, I hope she would have been happy with the, uh, the result.
0: Yeah, I'm sure she would have. Uh, it's a beautiful book. Once again, the title is Our Last Season, A Writer, A Fan, A Friendship. And Harvey, I'm glad you touched on uh, your background a little bit because you know, there are a lot of layers to this book. It is it is a basketball book. It is about the Knicks and the Garden and Fandom. Um, as you mentioned, it's a it's about women's empowerment. Uh it's 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 about Michelle's story and it's also your story. And I, I loved as a fan of your writing, I love to uh read about your early years growing up in the projects in Staten Island and um how you got into the business and, and some of the some of your stories from the early years in the business were fantastic. Uh, I love the story about the 1972 gold medal game in Munich. Um, I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit. And was that the biggest, Would you consider that the biggest blunder of your career?
1: Uh, I don't think that I would, you know, consider that the biggest blunder. I'd have to think a while about some other blunders, (laughs) but, um, (laughs) I I I mean, it wasn't
0: really, it wasn't your fault. I mean, that it it was a crazy situation, how it played out, of course, but go ahead, please. please,
1: When I I graduated high school, Port Richmond High School in Staten Island, New York, um, in 1970, uh, just by some quirk of fate, uh, someone I knew uh, through playing basketball uh, was a, a few years older than I am, and he... Uh, he worked at the Staten Island Advance, which is our local paper, and uh, a pretty good-sized paper. I mean, if you picked Staten Island up and moved it to the middle of Iowa, it would be a city of roughly three hundred and fifty thousand or so. And the stat, everybody on the island, because we were kind of removed from the rest of the city, uh, you know, read read the local paper and. He asked me if I was if I was interested in working at the Advance, and I said, "Doing what? I couldn't imagine what the heck I could do at a at a newspaper. It wasn't something you know that I had any ambition to do. But it turned out that my job was to drive into Manhattan every Saturday afternoon and pick up glossy photos at the AP building at Rockefeller Plaza. Uh, this, of course, was the days before high speed wires and the internet and all that. So I would." go into the city and pick up these photos, drive them back and then work Saturday night, stripping the wires and attaching the old ticker tapes to the hard copy, print copy, and bringing them out to the composing room. Each story that the editor, sports editor, uh, was, was requesting. So anyway, in 1972, you know, I was in college by then. Uh, I was, uh, on that shift, and it was the night of the Olympic, the infamous Olympic gold medal basketball game in Munich uh, between the US and the Soviet Union. And so, my editor, uh, someone I'm still friendly with today, uh, said to me, um, You know, go in the room and, and wait for the result. Uh, we need it right away because we were on the early edition deadline. <laughs> So I see the result, U.S. wins. Doug Collins hits two free throws to clinch gold medal victory for United States over Soviet Union. I strip the hard copy. I attached, I wind up the tape on the little spool machine. I rush it out. We won, we won. And uh, he, uh, he says, bring it out right away to the composing room. I give it to them. I come back. And now I feel like, wow, you know, that was deadline pressure. You know, I felt pretty good about myself. Sat down, put my feet up on the table. Figured like, uh, well, the edition will block up soon, and then we, you know, we'd have a dinner run or whatever before the second edition. And uh, but about fifteen minutes after that, I just got up and I wandered back into the into the little, very narrow wire room, which was flooded with you know copy everywhere, you know, spilling onto the floors, and just out of curiosity, I mean, I'm, I think I. I mentioned this in the book, you know, 6.30 or 6 o'clock on a Saturday evening in September, you've got college football, you've got baseball. So the machines, the the, the wire is constantly moving. And I just started, you know, uh, rifling through the copy. And I come upon this one story that says, Olympic correction, U, uh, USSR 53, or whatever the score was, and fifty-three U.S., fifty-two, and I'm reading the lead, and it says it describes what had happened. You know, at that late, it was late night in Munich, and that they had overturned. They, they the Russians had inbounded the ball for a last, a last-ditch attempt. They, they replayed it uh, on the replay. The, uh, the pass went down court. The Russian defender caught the ball. The defender fell down. He laid it in. And all of a sudden, the gold medal was lost. So now my heart practically stops. I, I rush out with, the, second, with, the, with the, the, the corrected version. And I say, and this guy's name was Tom. I said, Tom, Tom, I, 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 we lost. And he's looking at me like, what are you talking about? And I explained it to him all the color drains from this man's face. I mean, he's the sports editor. He rips the copy and the tape out of my hands, rushes out through the doors. They have to stop the presses and now set this corrected story. And, you know, there were some, as I say, I don't know whatever happened to the whatever, however many copies of the Sunday Staten Island advance that had the U.S. winning the gold medal. But, All I can say is, thank God, I actually, I don't know what moved me to go back into that wire room, but if I had sat there for an hour, you know, or, you know, we had ended the edition and gone out for, you know, for dinner before we came back, they might have done the entire run with the wrong story in the paper. You know, it it was, it, it was a moment where, you know, if I didn't work for a kind understanding man where my journalism career could have been flushed down the toilet, you know, in that one episode at the age of 19, turning 20. But fortunately, fortunately he put his arm around me at the end of the night and said, I'm glad you went back in there, you know, learn from your lesson, learn, learn, learn the lesson from this experience. Never take anything for granted in this business.
0: Wow. That's such a great story. And I mean, it was, it was, such an unusual circumstance, of course. I'd love to get a hold of of one of those papers uh, with U.S. wins gold medal. It's not quite Dewey, It's not quite Dewey beats Truman, but it's it's pretty cool.
1: Yeah, well, it's in and you know, in Staten Island, um, you know, I, again, if I think back and I win, so cringe even that. I, again, you know, I'll forever be grateful. Whatever little angel in my brain said. Get off your butt and go back in the room and see what's going on. I don't know why I did. Maybe I was just curious to see some other scores. I'm a big sports fan. Maybe I wanted to see – it was 1972, I think, the Yankees. I was a big Yankees fan. And that year, all, I, I just remember it as the year of Celarino Sanchez playing third base for the Yankees. And uh, uh, I know they made – they was sort of in a pseudo pennant race, uh, divisional race. Uh, and I remember, so it's likely that I went in just to see how the Orioles did or the Red Sox or something, the teams they were competing with and wound up, you know, basically, uh, maybe saving my career. Who knows?
0: (laughs) It's crazy. Um, well, Harvey, I've, I've taken enough for your time, I'd like to ask you one last question that I ask, uh, all of my guests. And that is, what is your all time favorite sports book?
1: I would say uh, the, uh, the, because I'm such a basketball junkie and uh, I love sports books that are deeply reported. I mean, I've always been, uh, even with this book, um, you know, I, I never, the idea of writing a memoir uh, or even a semi-memoir never really appealed to me. I always felt like, you know, I'm not, I never considered myself one of these brand journalists uh, who's going to recount you know, every episode of my career. But if what made this more attractive to me was the ability to tell a story in the process of writing a little bit about myself. Uh, but I've always been a fan of uh, deeply reported books, and um, which, of course, is why I'm, um, I'm looking forward to reading your book, Paul, on the 90s Knicks, um, because I know a lot of reporting and effort went into it. Um, Thank you. But I would say the breaks of the game, the David Halberstam book, um, on oh, sure, yeah. You know, it, it was it was it was about professional basketball in the late seventies, but it was really it was told through the Portland Trailblazers, the Bill Walton Paulton Portland Trailblazers. But the level of detailed reporting of him being embedded in this world was so fine and so revealing that I would have to say that um that book more than any other uh, stands out for me.
0: Yeah, that's a classic, absolutely. Um, All right, well, Harvey, again, thank you so much for coming on. This was a real treat for me. Harvey's book, once again, is called Our Last Season, a writer, a fan, a friendship. It's really a beautiful book. I mean, it's, it's about love, it's about friendship, it's about mortality, and of course, basketball. So I highly recommend it. And thank you again, Harvey, for coming on.
1: Paul, it was my pleasure. Thank you for your uh, interest in the book. Good luck with yours. And um, I hope we run into each other down the road somewhere.